I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. As together we continue on in the Gospel according to Luke. And today we're going to be reading Luke 3 and verses 7 through 14. And considering a subject that John brings up, but which Jesus spoke on as well, which is hypocrisy. We'll talk about what it means to, to be a hypocrite. What is it to be a hypocrite? But before we turn our attention to God's word and read more about the ministry of John the Baptist, let's go to God himself and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I am a man with feet of clay. I am weak, and Lord, I confess I am a dying man speaking to dying men. I do not have within me the, the power to divide your word aright. I don't also have the power to apply it to hearts, but I know that you do, and I pray that you would. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause people to listen with uh, attentiveness, to have ears that are open for your message. That's something only you can do. Otherwise, O oh Lord, we will remain stony-hearted. But let that not be the case. Remind us, O oh Lord, that whenever your word is being preached, we're entering into spiritual warfare. And so, Lord, help us to be on our guard against the devil. It's so easy to watch a movie through to its conclusion, but so hard to listen to a sermon all the way through. Help us then, O oh Lord, to take these things in, to consider them, and then later on to meditate upon that word that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 3, and I'll begin with verse 7. Then he, that is John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The first time when I asked somebody um, why they don't go to church uh, and in the process of evangelizing, I believe it was at a fourth Friday, and it was, I was about to say decades ago, and then say, no, it can't have been decades, it was decades ago. Um, and I was taken aback the first time I heard somebody say, oh, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Um, my feeling at the time was, how wooed, you know, that you would say such a thing. Um, I was really uh, kind of flabbergasted by that the, the first time I heard it. Since then, I've heard it so many times that I have got kind of a set-piece response. I, I look at them straight in the eye and I say, oh, no, it's not full. We have room for one more. So that's, uh, and usually if they have a sense of humor, they'll, they'll actually laugh. Uh, or they'll get into high dudgeon. How would they would say such a thing to me? 
But what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is a fascinating word, isn't it? Because hypocrisy is one of those words that never applies to you. It always applies to someone else. Uh, the world is full of hypocrites. Thank heavens you're not one of them. That's the, uh, the way of it. Um, very few indeed have ever really grappled with that cold, stark revelation. You know what I am? I'm a hypocrite. Very few have ever come to that, uh, that point. Um, and it's an important one. Webster defines hypocrisy in his 1828 dictionary in the following manner. He says, it's one who feigns to be what he is not, one who has the form of godliness without the power, or who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. Then he quotes Job 8.1, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. One French writer, Woodley, put it, hypocrisy is the homage vice pays to virtue. I think he's right there. John Owen commented that the critical difference between the hypocrite and the true child of God, he said, it doesn't lie in the behavior of the person. It lies in the heart. You may go through the motions of religion. You may give all you have. But if it doesn't sincerely reflect the love of your hearts for God and your neighbor, it is worth, worse rather than worthless. And that's why Paul was able to write in 1 Corinthians 13, 3. He was able to say, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not love, it profits me nothing. And we need to consider that. Think seriously about that for a moment. You can give away literally everything that you own to the needy. You can die as a martyr for the Christian faith, burned at the stake. But if those deeds do not spring from a heart that loves God and desires to obey them. If they spring, for instance, from a desire to have personal recognition and renown, or just a, a, a stubborn pride, then it's worthless. Our hearts need to be filled with love for our God, and as a result of that, love for our neighbors. And if they aren't, then ultimately even the good works, technically good works that we do in conformity with God's law, they aren't really good works. They are false. They are a simulation of goodness. I hope no other parents in the room have ever done this, but when my, my children were being particularly uh, badly behaved, and of course they've changed since, since these days, remarkably, I used to say, think of what a Christian would do and then do that, okay? I, I, I realize now, I was asking them, simulate Christianity at this location we're going to, okay? Because I, I can't bear it if you continue to act like this around civilized people, much less Christians. But that simulation of goodness may fool other men, but it will never fool God. He knows your heart. He knows who you are, friends. He knows who you are within. Now, John the baptizer was confronted by crowds of people coming out to him, and mostly they were coming from Jerusalem, the capital city. And those crowds included people from every walk of life, including the high and the mighty. We even have members of the chief religious parties in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming out to be baptized by him. And the text of, while Luke doesn't make that very explicit, Matthew does. Uh, Matthew makes that explicit when he writes uh, in his gospel in Matthew 3.7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, 
Think about the setting. By all the standards of modern ministry, in terms of, you know, nickels and noses and so on, John should be ecstatic. He spent virtually nothing on his ministry. Think about it. And yet the response at this point is overwhelming. He has the numbers. He, have the, he has the influence. And now he has the really important people in the society coming out, flocking to hear him and be baptized. I, he should have been overjoyed. But, but John uh, isn't like that. John is not the kind of person who listened to the church growth professionals. Uh, if he had been, he would have been preaching, you know, sensitive, light emotive messages where he really was desiring to, you know, come, come on. You know, that kind of, that's not John at all. He's not, he's also not like that. He doesn't, you know. He's not seeking to, to kid anybody about their real, their real situation, their real status. He's not seeking to attract, quote, seekers to Jesus. I mean, when he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and keep in mind, these were the, the leaders in, uh, in Israelite uh, society, he doesn't call them friends. He doesn't call them dearly beloved. He doesn't call them even esteemed leaders. He calls them, you brood of vipers. That's how he addresses them. He calls them not what they seem to be to all the other people. Uh, he doesn't address them according to their status or their station. Uh, he doesn't even address them in the way that self-preservation would seem to require. Instead, he addresses them as what they really are, and that is hypocrites. These were men who were playing the role of virtuous religious leaders. They'd made it their life's work, but there was this massive difference between what they were pretending to be and who they really were. Now, what did they claim to be? Well, we see it in these verses. They claim to be the sons of Abraham. They claim to be the sons of the covenant, the sons of righteous Abraham and God, the lawful inheritors of the kingdom. They'd been uh, circumcised on the eighth day. They were observant of the laws, and not just the laws contained in the Old Testament, but the myriad of traditions that had been made up by the rabbis in the intervening time since the word was laid down. They were very zealous for the traditions of men. They were the kind of guys who would make sure that they weren't carrying an entire fig in their pocket on the Sabbath, but only half a fig. So it wasn't really carrying a burden. But what were they really? John spells it out clearly in the language he uses. He calls them the brood or the offspring of vipers. And that is a highly biblical image. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have known exactly what he meant by it. In calling them the children of serpents, John was not just saying that they were like vipers, that they were shifty and poisonous and so on. He's also speaking of their true parentage. He was saying to them, I know who you are. You claim to be sons of Abraham, but you are in fact sons of the serpent of old. You are sons of the devil. And throughout the Bible, beginning with the garden, the devil is, is frequently spoken of as that form that he took on there. He's spoken of as the serpent. In Revelation 12, 9, we read of the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The serpent of old, you remember, deceived Adam and Eve, and he led them into sin. And from that time on, all of mankind has been split into two parties. Those who are continuing on in their rebellion against God, and were therefore sons of the devil, 
and those who obeyed God because they are his spiritual sons, because they've been changed inwardly. Now, John knows very well the camp that the majority of Sadducees fell into, and he knows who their father is. And of course, so did Jesus. Jesus didn't pull any punches either. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to John 8.39. We're going to read that section, John 8.39 through to 44. There we read this. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, like all religious hypocrites, what they try to do is to conceal their true nature by their outward profession, by their works. But John, via the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he sees them for who they really are. He knows them. Yes, they are physically descended from Abraham. Genetically, they, if they were given a DNA test, if they existed at that time, they could confirm, yes, these, these men were descended from Abraham. They were members of one of the 12 tribes or a mixture of some of them. But spiritually, they have nothing in common with Abraham for they are rejecting Christ and the gospel. The true seed of Abraham, the true sons of God are those who love Jesus and who are united to him by faith. That's a true follower of the Lord. So Paul can write, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you see, to be Jesus's follower is to know him by faith and to love him, not simply to be genetically descended from Abraham or some other uh, great religious leader. The fact is, you, you can't get into heaven through your parentage, through your descent. I was talking yesterday, well, I say talking, I was communicating via social media yesterday with somebody who had made the uh, point that J.C. Ryle, the evangelical bishop, one of the, uh, one of the best leaders of uh, the uh, evangelical movement at the end of the 19th century, that his own son became well-known as a religious liberal and a hypocrite himself. But unfortunately, that's been the case uh, often, that the sons of great professors of religion have become themselves merely hypocrites. But... They are not, <laughs> these are not lovers of Christ. And so John reproves them publicly. And why does he do this publicly rather than taking them aside and reproving them in public? Well, there's, uh, private rather. Uh, he singles out the Pharisees and Sadducees for his rebuke, but his words are addressed generically to all religious hypocrites who make a pretense of repentance but hold no true affection for God and his word and most importantly for his Messiah in their hearts. And it was also very important that John tell all the people and they be brought to a realization of who the Pharisees and the Sadducees really were because they had turned all of Israel away from the true paths of, of salvation and had gotten them into a current whereby they thought that they could be saved by their ethnic identity, by their circumcision, and by their law following. They were no longer trusting 
in the coming Messiah whom Abraham had put his faith in. You remember it was said of Abraham, Abraham believed God regarding his promises that he would be the ultimate, he would be the father of the one who would be the blessing to the nations, that from him a seed would come who would save his people from their sins. And instead, what were they doing? They were just teaching men their traditions, teaching them the traditions of the rabbis that they had made up. And you need to remember that, that rebuking these people as openly as he did was a courageous thing for John to do. These were some of the most important men in Israel. But remember this, that's something that we're all called to do when it comes to the truth. It shouldn't be the case that we mince the truth depending on who we're talking to. We shouldn't be man-fearers regardless of where we are. Ministers of the gospel in particular are called not to be man-pleasers, and that's a hard thing sometimes. Because occasionally you will have to tell the, <laughs> the, quote, most important people in the congregation in terms of things like their giving or their social status or their influence that they are not right with God. They have a power and a duty to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and that includes people who have exalted themselves. John did this, he was willing to do this, not only because he loved the Lord God, but because he also, understand this, he had compassion for Pharisees and Sadducees and the people that they were misleading. You do not do anybody a favor when you go along with their lies that they're telling about themselves. Often, they will, to a certain extent, believe those lies that they're telling themselves. And that does them no good at all. I always remember that if I offend people in my preaching, that hopefully the offense comes from the gospel. And if I do offend you, remember it's because my, my and I, I speak truly, my, my true desire is for the good of your souls, honestly. And sometimes that means that I'll, I'll have to say very direct things. But consider this, would you go to a doctor who said, uh, oh, come on in, I, I make a covenant with all my patients, I will never cause you any pain. How do you administer a shot? Oh, I don't do that. Surgery, that, that hurts. I don't, no, we, don't, we, we don't do that here. We're a kinder, gentler kind of medical community. Would you go to that doctor? I, I don't think so. No, I, I need somebody who's willing to, to, you know, refer me for painful surgery, if that's honestly what's necessary to save my life. John doesn't pull any of those punches either. He's a physician of the soul. He tells them the time of the judgment of God has come in verse 9. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's a biblical image that you should be familiar with. Cut down and cast into the fire. And what's being spoken of here, really? The fire that's being spoken of is an eternal fire. He's speaking of eternal damnation in hell for all those who on the last day are not found in Christ. That's a very, that's the most important day that faces every person in this congregation. And the question of whether or not you are ready for that day is the most important question, regardless of whether you realize it, that you have to deal with. Because when we pray for the return of Christ, and I hope you pray for the return of Christ, we're called upon to do that. We are asking for something to happen that will bring, I, I hope, all of us great joy. But at the same time, we are praying a curse down on the evildoers. For when he returns, 
It'll be a time of rejoicing for those who have bowed the knee and have closed with him this side of eternity. But it will be for the wicked a time of judgment. It'll be the beginning of eternal punishment. It'll be the day when they are, they're judged and found wanting and then cast into hell with the devil and his servants. And that's what John is warning of. And what, why? Why does, why does he do that? Does he do that because he hates them? No, the answer is he does that because his desire is actually to save their souls and the souls of his countrymen. The lighthouse does not hate the ship that it seeks to turn away from the shore before it crashes and makes a shipwreck. So too, somebody who is telling you the truth about the state of your soul is doing it not because they hate you. If they hated you, you know what they'd do? They'd shut up about it. Oh, you're doing fine. Yeah. You'll, you'll be fine on the last day, I'm sure. It'll be, you'll be cast into the, to the pool of puppies and pancakes. It'll be just rainbows and butterflies. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's not love. No, he warns them because he doesn't want them to come to the judgment of Christ. He wants them instead to repent and to flee to the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, if you truly believe in the existence of hell, and you should, you know who preached the most in the Bible about hell and its reality? It's Jesus Christ. He always spoke about it as a place of eternal, conscious torment. If you believe, therefore, in hell, you should have nothing but compassion for the lost. The worst thing that a Christian could ever say to somebody would be, go to hell, because it is the worst possible fate that anybody could endure. But Christ, like John, loved the people that he came to save, so he didn't allow them to stumble blindly into damnation, and we shouldn't either. A story is told about a 19th century chairman of the board of a mining company in the UK. And he, one day, and an important investor in the company paid a visit to one of their mines. And uh, a lowly but godly uh, Welsh miner was assigned to take them down to the pits and show them around. And during the visit, the chairman liberally sprinkled his talk with profanity and blasphemy. And as they were descending in the hoist to the pit, the chairman quipped to the miner, if it's so far down to your work, how much farther is it to hell? The miner promptly replied, I do not know how far it is to hell. Oh, well, I'm doing an Irish accent now. Sorry, I won't do Welsh accent. I do not know how far it is to hell, sir, but I believe that if the cable by which we are descending should break, you would be there in a minute. And that's the truth. Now imagine how much courage it took that miner to say that to the chairman of the board. But we all need that kind of courage, a courage that makes us no respect as a person, but instead compels us to counsel men to flee from the wrath to come by embracing Christ and repenting of their sins. We're not asking anybody to do something bad. Do you know, it's, it's funny how much more willing people are to, to, to tell people that they need to do something for their company or for the army, or for some, you know, something far more onerous of limited possible advantage to them. And yet when it comes to the most important thing that we can tell somebody about, that is about salvation through Christ, how reluctant we are when it comes to that, how embarrassed we are. Can you imagine if we were that embarrassed about our spouses? Do you have a wife? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. You know. What would people assume? Can't be a very good wife if that's his attitude. <laughs> yeah. Something's wrong here. 
Shouldn't we long to tell people about Jesus Christ? We call ourselves what? What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians, indicating what's at the very heart of our being. Christ and the love of Christ. And therefore, shouldn't we be dying to, to tell people? Well, John tells them, and in verse 8, he tells them also to bear fruits, that is, good works that show the reality of their conversion and their repentance. And the people reply, don't they, with a good question. They say, what, what shall we do? You say, good works? What do you mean? In other words, what will these works of repentance look like in my life? And what John does then is he directs them to the second table of the law. The first set of commandments, you remember, teach us how to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, our might, our mind, and our ability. And commandments 5 to 10 deal with our duties of charity to our fellow men. You should not be selfish. You should be charitable. You should not steal. You should earn your wage honestly. And notice John doesn't say you can't be a tax collector. That, that was a mind blower for me. Leave that profession. It is evil. You know, that's what I expect. But he doesn't say that. He understands that the magistrate has the right and the duty to raise taxes. But he tells them, don't raise more than you are assigned. Because anything that they took in beyond what they had to send to Rome, well, they got to keep. And so they gouged and gouged and gouged. He also doesn't say you can't be a soldier. But what does he tell them? He says, go about your vocation, go about your calling in a way that gives glory to God and shows the reality of your faith. Brothers and sisters, we often make this secular sacred distinction as though those who are called to ordain ministry are, you know, they're in a... In, they're the only people who can really give glory to God in their calling. But you can give glory to God in, in whatever calling you're called to. As long as it's a legal profession, you can't be a Christian thief or a Christian prostitute. Don't even try, obviously. Christian drug dealer, etc. I could go on uh, for hours talking about illegal professions. But if you are in a legal calling, it's rather like what happened with Luther. Luther was confronted by a cobbler, and he'd just become sincerely converted. And he said, Father Luther, what shall I do? I've, I've just become a Christian. What trade shall I now go into? Shall I take up holy orders? And so on. And he said, well, what do you do now? And he said, I'm a cobbler. He said, are you a good cobbler? He said, oh, yes, I'm a very good cobbler. And he said, then be a cobbler to the glory of God. It is actually possible. But John, once again, is counseling these people who come to him to avoid hypocrisy like the plague it is. And rather do good works that God prepared for you beforehand in sincerity and from the heart. And you and I, we've got to be engaged in those good works. We have to show the reality of our conversion and our repentance by doing those good works and doing them cheerfully. Now, having said all of that, I would be a hypocrite if I did not stop and say, as I've gotten older in the faith, I become more and more aware of my own hypocrisies, my own failures to be sincere in my faith. I cannot tell you how many times I've said things like, oh, I'm not judging you, when in fact internally, I am judging you so hard right now. You have no idea. You'd be knocked down by the weight of my judgment at this point in time. Or doing things like, uh, I'm going to reserve the right to let you down. I'm going to say I'm going to do something, and then I'm not going to do it. And I secretly had no intention of ever doing it. I told you I would, just to get you off of my case. And how often do we do that with the ones we love the most? Honey, can you? Oh, of course. Of course I'll do that project that you've been telling me about for the last three years. Yes, this weekend. 
Do you know what, honey? I don't think I'm going to be able to get to it. But then what do I do? I reserve that right to myself. But then if you let me down, how dare you? How dare you let me down like this? It's terrible. I remember, I, and you know, I think the worst kind of hypocrisy is when two hypocrites know they're being hypocritical to each other. They know it's all feigning and, and play acting. One of the worst experiences of my entire life, and I'm not joking, is when I used to go to, uh, we were obviously, we used to be in the PCA, we used to be in a different presbytery. I would go to those presbytery meetings. They detested me, absolutely. And I, they would greet me, though, every single time. <laughs> hey, brother! So good to see you. I'm glad you're here. And then I would be amazed coming out of my, my mouth was, oh, I'm so glad to be here too, brother. And we both know we are completely full of it at that moment. Neither of us is being honest. That's an awful way to deal, for Christians to be dealing with one another. I mean, I, I don't suppose I had to be brutal and say, you know, I, I searched my mind for every single plausible excuse for not coming today. But then the session told me I had to, so here I am. Let's get it on, you know. Ready for my spanking. You don't have to do that, but I, I realized I need to be saved from my hypocrisy. I need to be saved from my, my feigning. From all of the times that the, the truth has not passed my lips, but things that I thought people wanted to hear. When I play-acted, the Christian without feeling it at all. I need Christ. I need his righteousness. And if you're like me, and I, I'm guessing some of you are, hopefully there are some of you who are such genuine saints, you, you're like, play acting? Feigning Christianity? Not I. <laughs> Never. No, we need Christ. We need the one who never feigned anything, who was always true and honest who obeyed his father's commandments from the heart out of absolute love. Remember this also, Christians, when we play the part of the hypocrite, we wound religion far more deeply than the play actor. Take a look at your, uh, your worship folders. There's a word here. The first time I, I read it, I was incredibly convicted, especially given my, my witness before my children. Sabbath meditation by... Uh, a bishop by the name of Ezekiel Hopkins, he writes this, the wound religion receives from hypocrites is far more dangerous and incurable than that inflicted on it by the open and scandalous sinner. For religion is never brought into question by the enormous vices of an infamous person. All see and all abhor his sin. But when a man shall have his mouth full of piety and his hands full of wickedness, when he shall speak scripture and live devilish, profess strictly and walk loosely, this lays a grievous stumbling block in the way of others and tempts them to think that all religion is but mockery and that the professors of it are but hypocrites. It leads people to make statements we know to be false, like, oh, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Brothers and sisters, let us not be wounding religion by our lives, but instead let's pray that the Lord would give us the strength to be true, and that in the end we would depend upon him to save us from our own hypocrisies. God, our Father, as we come before you today, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a renewed desire to live honestly as Christians, to love you from the heart, to desire to serve you with all of our being, 
We pray, Lord, that we would not say things to others that we knew to be untrue because we are playing a part for them. I pray, O Lord, that we would be honest, that we would not be brutal or harsh, but that, O Lord, we would seek to to speak the truth to one another. I pray, O Lord, that we would be, rather than playing at being friends with people, genuinely seek to be reconciled to them, to show the kind of love that Christ showed to the unlovely. I remember, Lord, that he walked around with, uh, with a group of people who were always exalting themselves, always misunderstanding what he said, and yet he was so supremely patient and loving with them. Let us have that kind of spirit as well. Now, Lord, as we come to the table, remind us of our need of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and remind us that the table points us to the finished work that he has completed.